The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., or 12 p.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Rebecca and I, my wife Rebecca and I, have a, a son named Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a, a name in the Bible of a great leader in the Bible, so we named him after that guy. So his name is Nehemiah, and he's not quite two yet, but we're starting to pick up on a part of his personality um, that's unique from his sister. So Scarlett, our daughter, his older sister, is uh, you know, very aware of like, the people around, around her and just really engaging. And so when she was little, when she first started to start crawling after something, like if she was going towards something that was breakable or could hurt her, we could just kind of like get her attention and she'd be distracted and she'd kind of crawl over towards us. But we very quickly realized that that is not the case with our son. He has this inner drive and determination that if he sees something that he wants, he is not going to be deterred, okay? So like if he's crawling towards, and I see there's an electrical socket that he's got his eyes on, and he starts going towards it, and I might be like, hey, buddy, look over here, and I'm like jingling some keys. He's like, it's like crawling faster before I get up from my chair, trying to get over there even faster. So he's got this thing inside of him that is, um, it's a great trait. He's determined, he's driven, he gets his eyes fixed on something, he's going to go after it, which scares me a little bit going forward. Um, but I think ultimately that is a strength as long as we can channel that in the right direction. But I think about, there's something about each one of us that we have this inner drive towards something, something in particular. There's an inner drive that we have, and, and for some of us, it may have been just because life kind of muted down to like a whisper. But for some of us, it may still be blaring loudly like a call. But it's this inner drive that we have that inside of us, we truly and desperately want to use our lives for something that matters. Like in the end, I think this is somewhere in there for every single one of us. Like in the end, we don't want to waste this life. Like we want to be able to say at the end of our lives, like I used this up, like that something, I was able to accomplish something for good with this life. I was able to see, that I was able to make an impact with this life. I think that desire, that drive is down deep. But so often what happens is we're going along, along, pursuing after that. There's some bright, shiny, jingling keys. They're like, oh, wait, what's that? And it kind of distracts us off the course. So we're going to spend this series, and we're kind of talking, we're using this idea of activate, and we're trying to take that spark, that drive of wanting to use, do something with our lives for good, and we're going to be talking about one component of our lives on how to, to, to fan that flame, how to ignite that spark in our lives. If you are, are new to our church or you're just our guest, you're visiting, here's what I want you to know about our church as your, your guest. First of all, we, we're so glad that you're here. We love that you're here, um, but we are serious at our church at going full throttle following after Jesus Christ. And we are full throttle following after him, um, holding nothing back in our lives and trying to link arms together to figure out how to leverage everything that we have in our lives for the sake of doing, uh, loving this world in the name of Jesus. So if you're here our get, as our guest, you're kind of looking into this, these discussions that we're having about how can we do that more as 
followers of Christ. So to do this, we're going to be looking through this series at a part of the Bible, um, the book called 1 Timothy. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, open to 1 Timothy. Um, we're going to be looking at chapter 6. Now, what is 1 Timothy? 1 Timothy is actually technically a letter. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this letter before we jump into it. We're going to spend our, this entire series in this one section of this letter. Timothy is not the author of this letter. He's the recipient. And the author is a guy by the name of Paul, like the famous Apostle Paul. Sometimes he's called Saint Paul. He's the famous Paul of the Bible. He writes a letter to Timothy. Now, Timothy is a young pastor and there are three letters that this guy Paul writes to young pastors. He writes two to Timothy and one to a guy named Titus. And those three letters are called the pastoral letters or the pastoral epistles. And what makes them in insightful and interesting is it's pastor training. It trains pastors and it trains uh, churches on how they're supposed to function. But there's one thing that he is telling this pastor to do that is on how to train certain people in his uh, in his scope of influence, that's really interesting for all of us to hear. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 17 today. Here's what it says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. This is kind of an interesting little window into what Timothy is supposed to do as a pastor. He says, okay, in your context, Timothy, those, he says, I'm teaching you how to train and what to share and how to uh, help certain categories of people. But he says, okay, but I want to speak to you, Timothy, about this one category. Those who are wealthy in your context. He says, I want you to teach them three things, those who are wealthy. He says, I want you to teach them first about not to be haughty, not to be prideful. He says, the second thing is I want you to remind them that riches are not, are not certain. They're not secure. And this is the third thing I want you to remind them is that God is one who provides all things to enjoy. And so he's saying, teach these three things to those who are wealthy in your context. Okay, so what are we supposed to do with that? Those of us who are hearing this so many uh, hundreds of years later, a couple thousand years later, what are we supposed to do with this? And so the first thing, if, if you're like me reading this, this passage, I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, who would be the wealthy of this present age today? And so if you're like me, okay, this I think we could all definitively agree would be categorized as wealthy. When I think of wealthy, I think of this. Okay, there's a house for sale here in South Florida. It's a home. It's here in South Florida, and it is the most expensive house on the market in the entire country, okay? And it's just about 45 minutes north of here in Hillsboro. If you're looking for a house, you might want to check this one out, okay? It's on, it's on the market for the bargain price of $159 million, okay? Let me show you uh, the picture of this house and tell you a little bit about it, okay? There's the house. Um, that water, that body of water in the background, that's the Atlantic Ocean. So it's right there on the beach. A little bit about this house. This house is an 1117. Say, what do you mean by that? That means 11 bedrooms and 17 bathrooms, okay? It's an 1117. I don't know if they use that language when it gets this large, but anyway. A um, couple things about this house. Um, it is 60,000 square feet, 
It is, um, if you like, hey, if, if I'm going to buy a house, I want it to be one of those houses with a good like in-home theater. Okay, this, then you might be interested in this house because this has the only privately owned and sanctioned IMAX theater inside this house, okay? It also has a larger garage. If you would like a larger garage, this has a 30-car garage underground, okay? Now, the one thing that you need to be just prepared for, like if you're starting to call your realtor, just keep this in mind before you do that. The taxes on this house are, are a little steep. They're $150,000 a year. So just keep that in mind. Okay, so I think when you see this house, most expensive house on the market in the country, I think that we can agree that that would classify as, as wealthy. I think that would be at least we could all agree. That, that the people that are looking at that house, they have some means at their disposal. Okay, but I saw this illustration that someone used to describe like the global economy, okay? And I wanted to just... It really helped me kind of reframe my thinking a little bit. And so I wanted to just share that with you this morning. I'm setting up here seven chairs, okay? And, and in the world, they say that there's a little more than seven billion people, okay? So we're going to use kind of a round number of, of seven billion, but there's a little bit more, okay? And so each one of these chairs, we're going to say hypothetically, is going to represent one billion people, okay? So this is the whole world right here, okay? And, and we're breaking it out. Here's kind of the middle chair. We're going to lay this out economically, okay? So this end, like the billions at this end, this is moving towards poverty. And the, billion on, the billions on this end, this is moving towards wealth. And we're going to kind of break this down to get an idea of the, who the wealthy are of this age that this passage is describing. We can't really go anywhere else in this series or in this passage before we know who he's talking about. So let's break this down. Let's move all the way down into this category. Okay, so this chair right here, the very end on the poverty side, we'll say that this is extreme poverty. This is the one billion or so people that are uh, the most impoverished. And let me describe what it's like in, in this chair as best as we could understand it. Okay, so most people in this chair are living on less than a dollar a day in this chair. So here's what that means. They are not unaware that they're poor. It's not that they're like, well, this is all I've ever known and I'm perfectly happy. Like they're very aware of their incredible need. Because every single day is about survival for them and their families. So in this, this billion people or so right here, um, it's like this. This is what I mean like by basic survival. Okay, they will, uh, they're, they're saying things like this. Man, I just wish my daughters could go to school so they could at least just learn to read and write. But the problem is they can't get education because we need them to walk a couple miles every day to go get water for the family. So they spend every day to go get water for the family. And the challenge is that the water that they're most likely getting is contaminated water that is making their family sick or even it might be fatal for their family. They're in this category. In this category, they, they don't have basic health care, like curable things, easy things that you could just easily go to the doctor and get cured. This, those are fatal for those in this category. It's not that there's, there, we don't have cures for these things. They just don't have access to it. So in this category, part of the challenge is it's not a matter of working harder. 
It's not a matter of being entrepreneurial. It's not a matter of, of, of having a greater work ethic. If this category is locked into this category, their family and their descendants have no hope of getting out of this, this category. This chair, most in this chair are living uh, on less than $2 a day. So this chair is not that, this is not that much different, this chair right here. It's a little bit different, but not by much. They're still also locked in. It's not considered extreme poverty, but it is definite, um, definite poverty, and they are aware of the fact that they are just trying to survive with their family. So they look at the rest of the world, and these categories, the kind of the far end of the, the spectrum from a poverty standpoint, they look at the rest of the world and like, man, what would it be like? I just can't imagine what it must be like to be able to have your kids learn to read and write. Like, how fortunate that they can have their kids read and write. Like, what would it be like if there in my village was one source of drinkable water? Like, what would that, that must be incredible to have, for the whole community to have one source. Or what would it be like if we could just get some basic medical treatment that could just, that are curable things. Like that's where this category in as they're looking at the whole rest of humanity. Okay, but let's go to the other end of the spectrum and let's talk this side of kind of, this is the kind of medium spot. So this side of that here on the wealthy end, like let's kind of define what this, is, what this looks like. So what would it mean like it to be in this category? If someone were to make $12,000 a year, someone were to make $12,000 a year, they would be in this chair. $12,000, someone makes $12,000 a year or more, they are in the extreme wealthy end of the spectrum. The, the wealthiest section. Okay, we got to... We got to pick that apart a little bit more. Okay, so let, let's expand this chair right here. Let's kind of break this chair out because we've got to figure out what's happening within these people here. So let's take the, the extreme wealthy and let's break just the extreme wealthy into seven chairs. Okay, so this now is no longer the whole world. This is just the, this final chair, the extreme wealthy, broken down into seven chairs. So this is all within the extreme wealthy from, uh, and the more wealthy it gets goes into this side. You guys tracking with me how we're kind of changing it up here? Okay, so these are all the extreme wealthy. Let's just talk about these two chairs right here. This is the extreme wealthy of the extreme wealthy. So this represents these two chairs, the top 4% wealthiest in the entire world. The top 4% would sit in these chairs. If someone were to make $19,500 a year or more, they would be sitting in these two chairs. They would be in the extreme wealthy of the extreme wealthy. They would be in the top 4%. Okay, let's just talk about the ultra extreme wealthy of the extreme wealthy. In this chair, this is the top 2% wealthiest on planet Earth right now. If someone makes $25,000 or more, they're in the top 2% of the entire world. They are the extreme wealthy of the extreme wealthy. Now just think about that for a second. Let's, let's think about that. Okay, let, let, let's go back for a second. Let's this, this go back to this is the whole world. Okay, this is the extreme impoverished of the whole world. 
This is the extreme wealthy of the entire world. This is all seven billion people again. Let's have a conversation for a second about what Timothy just said, what Paul just said to Timothy. He said, as for the rich of this present age, if you're hearing this message, you are in this chair. You are at the extreme wealthy end of the entire world. He says, as for the extreme, as, he just says, as for the rich. That's just this side of the spectrum. He says, I want you to warn them a couple things. I want you to tell them a couple things. So when he says that, every one of us, our ears should pick up because we are at the end, the extreme end of the spectrum of the world. He is talking to us. So what were the things that he said that we need to be aware of? He said, okay, as for the rich in this present age, that's us. Three things. The first one, charge them not to be haughty. Haughty is, is, just means prideful. So let's come back over to this chair for a second. What is prideful? What is haughty? What does it look like for the wealthy, the rich, to be haughty? This is what it looks like. It looks back at the entire rest of the world, and it says, I deserve to be here. If you worked hard like me, or if you did what I did, then you'd be here too. But I've put myself here. I, I have, what I have is because of my hard work, my intelligence, my investment. That's why I'm here. I deserve this. I deserve this chair. It's people like me that deserve to sit in chairs like this. This is the chair that I belong in. What I have is what I've made, what I've earned. It's mine. It's mine to do with it. And if you were like me, you'd get to sit in this chair. He charges them and says, tell them not to be prideful about their, their wealth. So he's saying, challenge them to be humbled. Notice he's, not to be guilted. It's not if you sit in this chair, it's to feel guilty that, that we sit in this chair down here. He says, don't feel guilty, just be humbled. Say, God, why do I deserve to sit here? I don't deserve to sit here. I'm unbelievably honored and privileged that I get the, the incredible honor to sit in this chair. Wow. I mean, because here's the reality. Those of us who are sitting in this chair, is it, do you, are, you, are we all hard workers? I, I believe everyone in here, you work hard for what you have, but our hard work is just kind of defining where we're at within this chair. The fact that we are sitting in this chair has pretty much almost nothing to do with anything you've done in your life. And so thinking, he says, charge them not to be haughty, to realize God, you have just placed me here. I, what an incredible gift that I have the privilege of sitting in this chair. I, I'm so honored to be on this end of the spectrum. And the first thing he challenges the rich of this present age, which is this church, is us. He says, be humbled by that. Wow, God, thank you. He says, the second thing that he says to do is he says, to not set their hopes, to not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Can I ask you a question? Are riches and money, is it uncertain? Absolutely. Riches are uncertain. We know that. Like, we, we know that. But we often use 
finances. I mean, it is just drilled into our culture to use finances. Finances are the key, we think, to my safety and security. It is how I control my future. It's how I make sure that I'm okay. Finances are the key to my security. But we know finances are insecure very easily by things completely out of your control. You could do everything right, and by a couple tweaks in the economy, you could completely lose everything. We all know that. But sometimes the key that we often say, it's, it's the certainty we're looking for is not just security, sometimes it's happiness. Does money make you happy? We all know the answer to that. We know absolutely not. Let me just read a, a quote from this book, The Treasure Principle. It's by a guy named Randy Alcorn. Just a fantastic book. Um, we're going to make it available in the back. I encourage you to pick up this book. It's called The Treasure Principle. It's got just six short chapters in it. You could wake up in the morning and read an entire chapter in 10 minutes, but it is absolutely profound. And I love some of these quotes that he has in here on this subject. He quotes some people. Listen, this is a Vanderbilt Vanderbilt's one of the wealthiest men in American history, and actually in uh, modern history. Here's what he says, a quote from him. The care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There's no pleasure in it. Vanderbilt said that. How about this one? This is uh, John D. Rockefeller. He might be the wealthiest man in modern history when you compare the amount of money he had access to in his time period. Here's what he said. I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Pretty straightforward. How about this one? I like this by uh, Henry Ford. I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. We know this, okay, man, we absolutely know this. We know that, that money and wealth and riches is uncertain. It, it, it is not a guaranteed source of security, and it's certainly not a guaranteed source of happiness. But so often, what happens? There's shiny, jingling keys, and we're like, oh, wait, what's that? Maybe that will make me happy all of a sudden. And it can so easily sidetrack and distract us. Paul tells Timothy, he says, challenge them to not be prideful, but be humbled. By where they sit. He says, and remind them of the uncertainty of it. it it's, in the end, we say, money is not the key. It's not the key to my security or my happiness. But then the third thing, he says, and remind them that God is the one that provides all of it for us to enjoy. You know what I love there? Is that he doesn't end with this idea that money and stuff is evil in and of itself. He's not saying that. In fact, he's saying it's a blessing. He's saying, man, remind them in this, in this chair, he says, remind them that this was provided by God as a blessing. He's blessed, blessed this group with that, blessed this side with that, is gifted for us to enjoy. But he's going to go on in this chapter and say the problem is we don't know how to enjoy it. And so we're not enjoying it often. And he says, the other thing that we have to remember is it's God who is the one who has provided it. And what Paul has just provided Timothy is this incredible formula. Because the first thing is I say, okay, I'm in this chair. I've got to recognize I'm in this chair. I don't deserve to be in this chair. I'm humbled by it. I don't deserve this. Second thing is I'm in this chair and I realize that money is not the key. It's not the key to my happiness. It's not the key to my security. It's not the key. It's uncertain. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And then the third thing that I realize is, okay, God, this is from you. 
And that's this formula where I start asking a really interesting question. Okay, you've placed this desire inside my heart, God, where I say, I don't want to waste this life. I want to do something that really matters. It may be just a whisper, but there is a spark deep down inside that I want to do something that matters. And all of a sudden, we realize what an incredible opportunity we have to do something incredible with our lives. Jesus um, shared this story, brilliant story. And he said like this, he said, I I want you to imagine there's a business owner and he's going on a long journey, like he's going to be away from his business for uh, several years. So he calls in his most trusted like lieutenants or servants They're laborers, but he knows that they're sharp. And he calls them in and he says, okay, I'm going to entrust each of you with a certain amount of my resources that you are in charge of managing while I'm gone. And I'm going to come back and you're going to give an account of how you managed it. And he says to the first one, he says, I'm going to give you five talents to manage. And when he said five talents, everyone who was listening to his story that Jesus was telling, their jaw just dropped. Because one talent is the equivalent of 20 years of labor. So he gave him five talents worth. So let's just round these numbers out. We'll say five talents, two and a half million dollars. This guy could work all his life and he would never have access to that amount of money. He says, but you're sharp. I'm going to give you two and a half million dollars. So he says, okay, you're in charge of that. He pulls the next one. He says, man, you're also really sharp. I'm going to give you two talents. I'm going to give you one million dollars. You're in charge of doing that. He says, this last guy, man, you're sharp too. I'm going to give you one talent, $500,000. He says, okay, while I'm gone, that is under your control. You have to invest that wisely. So he's gone for a long time. One day he comes back and he calls his servants together. He says, okay, I'm ready to hear an account, man. You guys are good. So I'm ready to hear what you've done, okay? And the first guy he calls in, he says, okay, I gave you five talents. What'd you do? And he says, well, while you're gone, I doubled your investment. And he says, I gave you two and a half talents. He says, now I'm giving you back five talents. I've doubled your investment. And he says, Wow, that's incredible. He says, I, I gave you two and a half million and I'm giving you five million back. He says, that is incredible. Great job. He goes to the next guy, the guy he gave a um, million dollars to, and he says, what did you do? He says, well, I also doubled it. I was working hard to invest this. I've doubled this. So here, uh, you gave me one million. I've got two million to give back. He's like, man, this is going great. He gets to the last guy and he's sweating. Beads of sweat on his on his forehead, he's kind of fidgeting, you know, he's kind of wringing his hands, and he says, look, I, I, I was just worried because, man, I've seen how you've, you've dealt with some of your other servants in the past, and you can kind of be a cruel uh, business owner, and these other guys are like, what are you talking about? He says, so I just buried it in the sand. I have your half million dollars. I, I didn't get anything more with it. I, here's your sandy half million dollars back that I just put in the dirt. And he looks at him and he calls him out on saying, you're a tough guy to work for. He says, you wicked and lazy servant, get out of here. You're fired. And they come in and they drag this guy out. And he looks at the other two and he said, I gave you, and this must have shocked the crowd when Jesus said this as the business owner. He says, I gave you a little and you were faithful with a little. Now I'm giving you a lot. Because to that business owner, that, that amount of money he gave them, that was a little to him. And he says, I've given you these resources. You are to manage my resources 
to use them for something good. Now let's think about this for a second. As we're talking about this chair right here, this is something that God has provided. and He's given it to us to do something good. So let's break that out a little bit. Like, to give you an idea, this parable that Jesus told might not be the best parable to describe this. It might not fully capture where you and I are at. Let me give you an idea. The American church, I'm using that term to define the church in the United States. The American church, one missions agency, put it like this, the American church is 11% of the entire global church. So 11% of the people that make up the global church are in the United States. We are 11% of the global church, but the American church has 70% of the global church's resources. Here, let me put it a, a different way, okay? American Christians, like the income of just American Christians... If you compare that to the gross domestic product of other countries, the GDP of other countries, just American Christians have more than the GDP of all other countries but five in the world. All right, let's let's put this something different. Okay, this right here, this is extreme poverty in the world. Economists say $73 billion a year for 10 years. If we could just find $73 billion a year for 10 years, we could eliminate altogether extreme poverty from the world. It would be eliminated. $73 billion for 10 years. If countries could just put that up and organizations could come together, $73 billion for 10 years, extreme poverty is eliminated. But another person said this, but here's what's interesting. If we just took 10% of the earnings of American Christians... Like if, if American Christians said, I'm going to put hypothetically 10% to, of my earnings towards that cause, 10% of the earnings of American Christians is $250 billion a year. In other words, hypothetically, just American Christians by themselves without any help of any other country or, or any other international organization, American Christians could solve extreme poverty in three years just by giving 10%. So give you an idea, how does that stack up to where we're at? American Christians, on average, give less than 3% of their income to any kind of charity a year. Think about it like this. You and I are a part of the single most resourced church, the American church the single most resourced church in the history of mankind. This generation has been resourced with more than any other generation of the, in church history. So let's go back to Jesus' parable. I wonder if, to kind of put this in perspective, like I, what if there was like a deleted scene that we didn't know about from Jesus' parable? And what if there was a fourth servant? So we did the three servants. The third servant just gets dragged out, and all of a sudden Jesus turns to the fourth servant. And he says, okay, to these I gave a little, and and two of them were faithful. That other guy is out of here. He wasn't. But you, man, fourth servant, I am really excited to hear what what you've done because I gave these a little. I gave you a lot. I gave you a hundred talents. 
I gave you $50 million. What have you done, fourth servant? And the fourth servant is just, he goes pale. And he says, I mean, he's just, not just sweats, I mean, tears swelling up in his eyes. And, he, and they say, I said, okay, well, did you get me any return at all? And he says, no, I, I didn't get you any return. He's like, okay, well, did you bury it? Do you at least have the money that I gave you? And he says, I thought that was for me. That's why I'm wearing this really nice robe and I've got all these rings and look at that gigantic tent I have out back. I thought that was for me. And if the business owner says that to the one who just gave him back without any investment, what is he going to say to the person who used his money for himself? The one who had been given the absolute most. We are part of a generation in the church of the United States that have been given more finances and resources than any other generation in the history of man. And I don't know about you, but on the other side of this life, I want to be in heaven and not face all of the Christian heroes that went before us as that fourth servant. I want to be there saying, I did everything I can to leverage this for good because there's part of it inside of my heart, and I think it's inside of your heart, that I just simply say, look, I don't know how, I don't know all the answers how, but God, I just want to use this life for something good. All right, so we've, I've thrown out a lot of different numbers and statistics. You know, we talked about the global economy. Okay, let's just kind of, let's kind of move away from all of these just different chairs, okay? We've had a lot of just different statistics. We've talked about a lot of different percentages and all kinds of just different numbers that we've talked about here, but let, let's eliminate this down and just get down to where each one of us are at. Because in the end, what's really important this morning is not all of these different chairs, it's just the chair that we're sitting in, okay, just where we're at. Because chances are where you're sitting is you're like, okay, you're, you're right, I want to leverage this for good. I, I know where I'm at, but here's where I'm sitting right now. The chair that I'm at right now is that it's not like I just have piles of money like laying around. It's not like I go out back and some people rake leaves. I'm just raking dollar bills in my backyard, okay? It's like, it's not like that. It's like, if, if I'm honest, I mean, there, many in here would say, look, I, I've got student loans that I'm still paying off. I've got credit card debt that I'm still working at. I just recently lost my job and I'm trying to figure out how to make ends meet or, or things have changed in, in the, the, the industry that I'm in and I'm, things are tight right now and I'm trying to figure out, like there's so many things. I, I wish I had money to save or money for the future or I wish I had money to give, but right now my finances are tight. I just It's going to take a lot for me to get where I want to be. Because where I'd like to be is leveraging my finances, this resource. Is finance the answer to everything? Of course money is not the answer to everything. But because it's a resource that he's given us in historic measure, we want to use that for God. So you might be saying, look, I'd love to do that, but man, it's complicated. And it's going to take time. And it's, I'm going to have to figure some things out. Here's all that this morning is about. It's really just about this. It's not walking out of here feeling guilty. I hope you don't walk out of here feeling guilty. I hope you walk out of here feeling inspired. I hope you walk out of here feeling humbled. Thank you, God. I hope you walk out of here with that little spark, like, lit up a little more. We're like, okay, I, I don't know how, but I want to get there. 
Like, I, I want to get there where I'm leveraging this even more. Like, I, I want to just start, show me the next steps. How do I get there where I'm leveraging my finances more for, to do good and to do what God wants me to do? Like, I, I feel like God has given me this. I want to do this better. That's all just lighting that spark, changing our, our thinking to realize, man, we are so humbled. We are so privileged, so honored. And what an incredible opportunity to be in the position that we're in. Changing that thinking and then here's just two very simple, practical things just for today. This is going to be a journey, and this is a journey that we're going to go on together. Because all of us have steps that we want to take. And I want to be a part of a church that one day God looks back at West Pines Community Church and he says, I resourced you and you, you well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with what I gave you. I want us to be a church like that. I want to be a part of a church like that. I want, to be, I want my family to, be, to answer that call. And so we are going to go on that journey together. So it's just really simple. Here's what I would practically encourage you to do. Stay engaged for the next few weeks. Just be here. Walk on this journey with us. If you have to miss, go on live stream or go on the, the video or the audio. Stay engaged. Let's take these steps together. And here's the other, one last practical thing. Uh, before you leave, here's what I would encourage you to do. This book is available. It's called The Treasure Principle. You could read this between now, easily between now and Sunday. It's a small book. My wife, Rebecca, and I, we try and go back to this book regularly. It's so profound. And it's just a book that will fan that fire inside. It will ignite that fire to want to leverage what God has given you for good. And so what I want you to do is on your way out, as you're passing by, that out that back door, we have these available. They're like $5. It's cheaper. You could get it anywhere else. And just pick up a copy and just let's go through this together as kind of a, a, kind of a, a manual supplementing our, this series as we're going. So I want to encourage you to just do those two things. But here's the last thing. Last thing is this. We talk about taking our resources and our stuff and admitting, this is all yours, God. What do you want me to do? God's asking a lot. A level of surrender, a level of taking our, our, our hands off, that's, that's, he's asking a lot. Why does he get to ask something like that, or why should we respond? Because, because he's not asking something that he hasn't personally done for us. If you're a Christ follower, here's what you know, and here's what fires us up as a church to want to be a part, full throttle, running after Jesus, being used for good in this world. Why? Because God looked down at us, all, each of us hopelessly lost and far from God. He looked down at each one of us. He says, no, I love you too much. I'm going to go get you. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God who is in heaven, talk about wealth. In heaven, he owned the universe and everything that's in it. He was, came down to earth, God in the flesh. Talk about restricted and confined. He's now God in the flesh. So now he felt exhaustion and pain and rejection. And Jesus, the Son of God, lived a perfect life, but then was crucified on the cross. He faced physical torture, but the worst part was God, because he was placing the wrath and punishment for sin on Jesus, he turned away from Jesus. He was separated. Jesus, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, why have you forsaken me, God? And Jesus experienced something that we will never have to experience if we're in Jesus. 
And simply Jesus paid for our sins so that God says, it doesn't matter what's in your past, it doesn't matter what you've done or what's entangling you, Jesus has paid for it, so I'm offering you forgiveness. And so here, that's offered to you today. If, you are, if you've already put your faith in Jesus, that's the reminder for why we offer everything back to God because he gave everything for us. But maybe you're here and you say, look, I've never found forgiveness in my life. I still feel so far from God. Today, you can simply receive the forgiveness of God. And if that's you, you just simply accept what Jesus did on your behalf to pay for your sins. And if that's you, I want to lead you in a simple prayer right now. Would you all just bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's you, I just want to lead you in this simple prayer. You say, I want to find forgiveness. I want to, I want to be reconnected with God today. Then just simply pray this right there in your seat. Just in your heart to God, just say, God, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you, Jesus, for sacrificing so much for me. Thank you that even though you are in heaven, you came down to earth to get me. Now I surrender everything to you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out our other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.